Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. This morning, we're going to be listening to a presentation by Dr. Edgar Andrews, world-renowned physicist who has debated atheists like Richard Dawkins. He recently did a presentation titled Atheism's Logical Cul-de-Sac. He emailed it to me and said, if you like it, go ahead and put it on the show. Well, I liked it, so we're going to listen to it on the show. If you'd like to get our previous interview with Dr. Edgar Andrews about his book, Who Made God, it's a great book. I'd suggest you buy it. Go to godsolutionshow.com and look for our interview with Dr. Andrews. Well, without any further ado, get ready for a great presentation. This will be the first of two parts by Dr. Edgar Andrews titled Atheism's Logical Cul-de-Sac. Good evening, and thank you for your invitation. Uh, I hope that we shall have an enjoyable time, although I must issue a health warning to start with, namely that I'm going to make you think. And I hope that doesn't prove to be a painful experience. I'm not an aggressive person, but I do have an aggressive purpose, because I want to demonstrate, I hope to your satisfaction, well, the three arguments actually lead the atheist into a logical cul-de-sac of his or her own making. And that in, in fact, those very arguments that they press as evidence that God does not exist lead logically to the necessity of God. What are these three arguments that we're going to look at? First of all, uh, the argument that God is not necessary because the idea of God has no explanatory power. The second argument that we're going to look at is the suggestion that the universe created itself. And so you don't need a God to create the universe. And the third argument uh, that we're going to consider is the idea that it wasn't God who created us, but we who created God. In other words, uh, the idea that God is a figment of the human imagination, uh, an invention of the human mind, which may have served some purpose in times past, but in our present enlightened age is no longer necessary. Well, those are the three arguments. Now let's get straight into them. First of all, <clears throat> this idea that God is not an explanation of anything. And I need to bring this into focus by telling you a story, a story you may have heard, a story that is completely untrue, but nevertheless quite useful in this context. And the story is as follows, that a famous astronomer gave a lecture on the solar system, sun and the planets, and, uh, the way they behave and orbit the sun. And after he had finished his lecture, which was a public lecture, lots of people had come to listen, uh, 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 he was approached by a questioner. And the usual version of the story, the questioner is a little old lady. I don't know why it's always a little old lady, so I'm going to say it's a little old man. Uh, the questioner, a little old man, came up to the lecturer and said, young man, you got it completely wrong. The earth is not suspended in space by the force of gravity. Uh, he said, the earth is supported on the back of a giant turtle. Now the lecturer seemed to remember that there were some 
uh, scientists in the past that had, um, had, had had such a, a mythological idea that the Earth was supported on the back of a giant turtle. So, uh, he, uh, the lecturer said to the questioner, uh, uh, oh yes, well, what is the turtle standing on? And the, the little man says, well, it's standing on another turtle. Uh, yes, and, and what is that turtle standing on? And the little man says, oh, you can't catch me out like that. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> now, as I, uh, any of you read Stephen Hawking's book, A, A Brief History of Time, which I never read, read that book. Right, <clears throat> well, you knew the story then. He uses it on page one. He didn't invent it, it's a, a very old story. <clears throat> but when the atheist asks the question, as uh, the atheist often does, who made God, or to put it in its full form, if God created the universe, who created God, who made God, when atheists ask that question, they are trying to push theists, those who believe in God, uh, into the same fallacy as was expounded by the little old man. And the fallacy as a name is called infinite regression. And the idea of infinite regression is that you seek to explain something, some phenomenon, some occurrence, some situation, uh, you seek to explain that, but the explanation you employ needs to be explained itself. And then that explanation needs to be explained by something else. We were probably familiar with this idea of an infinite regression if we've ever had children, or if we've ever been children for that matter, which I suspect covers all of this. Uh, the parent says to the child, it's time for you to go to bed. And the child says, why? And the parent says, well, you've got to have sleep. And the child says, why? Well, sleep is good for you. Why? You'll get ill if you don't have sleep. Why? And, and, and there was no end, of course, to the question. And there is never any answer that satisfies the child. Uh, and the parent has to put a stop to the infinite regression by saying, if you don't go to bed now, I won't pay you a pocket money or some other threat. Infinite regression gets us nowhere because if it's turtles all the way down, then the question arises, down to what? Uh, and of course there is no answer to that question. So here we have the question raised by, the first of my three questions raised by the atheist, uh, when uh, he or she says, who made God? Um, a question which is not so much a question, but uh, a challenge. A challenge which says, all right, you say that God made the universe. But who made God? And uh, if you read Richard Dawkins' best-selling book, The God Delusion, you will know how he insists upon this. He says, uh, you know, the universe is a very complicated place, very complicated thing, it's incredibly complicated. And if God created the universe, God must be more complicated than the universe. And complicated things don't just happen. They have to be made, they have to be constructed, they have to be put together. So, who made God? And if the theist is foolish enough to offer an answer to that question, uh, then of course uh, he is caught in an infinite regression. <coughs> Turtles all the way down. Well, of course, the theist normally is too intelligent uh, to, uh, to get into that situation. 
and the reply that the theist gives to the question who made God is nobody made God God is the eternal self-existent one he is the prime mover as ancient philosophers used to say uh, you can't ask the question who made God because God is self-existent he is the eternal one who transcends all material creation stands outside of space and time uh, but then the atheist uh, says well you've only pushed the mystery one step down who created the universe? God created the universe what does that add to the knowledge that we have that the universe exists? is our true knowledge uh, limited to the fact that the universe exists? and uh, whilst he, the atheist, uh, is equally wary of getting involved in a, an infinite regression nevertheless uh, he will say this there are women atheists of course I'm calling them all male because they don't like saying unkind things about ladies uh, but the atheist says well okay I stop an infinite regression by simply saying that the universe exists and if you say well if you leave God out of the picture what made the universe my reply to that is that nobody made the universe it's always been there it is the, the background it is the eternal reality uh, in which we find ourselves existing the universe therefore in a sense becomes God or the equivalent of God but the, the, the atheist uh, points out something which has some force and he says well if I've got to believe in some eternal self-existent entity I would rather believe in a universe that I can see than in a God that I can't see and as I say there appears to be some force in that we call it the brute fact theory of the universe the universe is simply given it is a brute fact, it's there and it cannot be explained and we are utterly wasting our time to attempt to explain why the universe is there we must just accept it as a brute fact and not try to explain it by invoking some invisible spiritual power like God now some of the older atheists people like the German philosopher Nietzsche <coughs> and the uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell they in fact did uh, adopt this idea of a brute fact universe and that it was a point of exercise in seeking to explain it you just have to take it as given, take it as granted and as I say they still felt they had the, the high ground logically uh, and empirically by saying well at least we can see the universe we know it's there so let that be the self-existing entity don't introduce an unnecessary idea of a spiritual being a God who made the universe because you're only replacing one <coughs> self-existent entity by another and that other is invisible difficult to access however there are two big problems with the brute fact approach to the existence of the universe the first is that the human mind will not accept it uh, you see the human mind is, is, is very curious isn't it 
it has a great deal of curiosity. I mean, they curious in other ways, but I'm talking about the curiosity that we have in our minds. The philosophers down the end, scientists also, have uh, asked the question, why is there something rather than nothing? We want to know. We're not satisfied with the answer that we can't explain the universe. We spend a tremendous amount of time and effort and emotional energy trying to explain the universe. After all, that's what science is all about. Why do people do science? What is the purpose of science? Well, the purpose of science is to explain the universe in which we live, or to attempt to do so, to make sense of it, to help and understand it. Ultimately, of course, it, it, it comes to be useful. We can use scientific knowledge and technology to make life easier for ourselves <coughs> and to uh, advance the progress of mankind. But that's not what comes first. It is not a utilitarian activity. Science is a, an activity of human curiosity because we are not prepared to sit back and say, the universe is there, no point in us trying to explain it. In fact, <coughs> coming back to young children, uh, the, the first philosophical question that a young child is likely to ask is, Mummy, where did I come from? And that's not asking for a lesson in reproductive biology. What that child is asking is, where did my self come from? The child is conscious at some age of being a person conscious of having a persona which is different from all the other persons around it. We say the human child becomes self-aware <coughs> and begins to ask questions about the meaning of life. Who am I? What am I doing here? How did I get here? In a philosophical sense rather than a biological sense. We are asking these questions. Perhaps when we've grown old, some of us are old, and uh, nevertheless, we may have stopped asking such questions. But we still have this curiosity that the human mind is not willing to accept that there is no explanation of the universe. There is no purpose in life. There is no significance in our existence. We are not prepared to accept that. <coughs> well, <coughs> that's the first problem with the brute fact answer, which says, don't introduce God because you've got a universe which is self-existent, eternal, and doesn't need to be explained. But there's an even bigger problem <coughs> with the brute force, uh, brute fact uh, universe. Now, a uh, hundred years ago, almost exactly a hundred years ago, the consensus of scientific opinion was indeed that the universe was eternal. It was unchanging. It was the unchanging stage on which the drama of our existence is lived out. There was plenty of activity locally in the universe. The planets go around the sun, and comets and meteors and all sorts of things go flying around. But when people looked out at the distant universe, they saw what they uh, called the fixed stars. And they called them the fixed stars because they were fixed, they didn't move. They were in the same place all of the time. They, they, they never moved, they never showed any kind of change or motion. And as I say, up till uh, almost exactly 100 years ago, that was the predominant view. 
and the statement in the book of Genesis, the opening verses uh, of the Bible, of course, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but the scientific opinion was, well, that's just ancient mythology. The universe is eternal. The universe has always been there. The universe, in its microscopic, in its grand uh, existence, is infinite, eternal, and nothing ever changes. But then, in 1915, a man, a scientist called Albert Einstein, discovered or uncovered or came up with the general theory of relativity. And suddenly, there was a completely different view of what the universe was all about. Instead of being the, the static stage on which the drama of our existence is lived up, uh, the universe became an actor in that drama. Because what Einstein discovered, in his theory at least, was that space and time could be distorted, could be warped, could be twisted. The space and time that had previously been considered just to be there, the very fabric of the universe, they could be distorted. And in fact, it is the distortion of this space-time continuum, as he called it, this fabric of the universe, it is a distortion of the fabric of the universe that gives rise to the phenomenon of gravity. Just like to give an illustration. Uh, think of a trampoline, okay? Uh, think of the rubber sheet on the trampoline. You take a, a, a very small ball, a ping-pong ball, shall we say, table tennis ball, you place it on the trampoline sheet. Providing the sheet is level, that ball will not move. So sit where you put it. But now you take a bowling ball, which is heavy, all right? Very heavy. You put that bowling ball in the middle of the trampoline sheet. Now what happens? Well, the trampoline sheet develops a dip. No longer level. It is distorted. Now you place your table tennis ball on the sheet and it will run towards the bowling ball. Now it's just an illustration of how distorting the sheet makes it appear that there is some kind of attractive force between the bowling ball and the table tennis ball. But there isn't, of course. Uh, it is simply that the distortion of the sheet makes the small lightweight ball want to run towards the big, heavy ball. And, and that is, I think, quite a good illustration of the idea that massive objects like stars and even planets, or any object actually, but it, the effect is normally so small uh, with small objects like you and me, that it doesn't make any difference. But when we get to massive objects like stars and, and, and galaxies and planets, then these distort the fabric of space, time, around them. And that is what gives rise to the apparent attraction of one body to another. Planet orbits the sun. Why? Because there is an attractive force between the sun and the planet. But says Einstein, no, it's not really a force. What is happening is the sun has distorted the fabric of space and time in such a way that there appears to be a force. The planet is, is trying to run in towards the sun, to spiral in towards the sun. 
doesn't do that because it has a centrifugal force by virtue of its speed of rotation. So it's imbalanced. But nevertheless, it is the distortion of space and time by a massive body like the sun that makes it happen. Now, you might say, well, surely that is just speculation. But uh, the amazing thing is, of course, that Einstein's general theory of relativity has been proved correct because it makes correct predictions. Light from distant stars is bent as it travels towards this, uh, as it passes a massive star between the source and ourselves. That's been proven, been demonstrated. So much so, in fact, that sometimes you see double because it acts as a kind of lens and you see the distant star twice, once on each side of the intermediate, intermediate object. Time is also distorted. The theory, general theory of relativity predicts that your watch, your clock, will run more slowly in a strong gravitational field than it does in a weak gravitational field. So your, your, your watch actually uh, runs more slowly when you're here on the surface of the Earth than when uh, you're in a transatlantic flight at 33,000 feet. Now that has been proven to be true. The effects are minute, so they don't normally affect our daily lives in any way. But nevertheless, that theory destroyed the idea that there could be a universe that was a brute fact universe and that had existed forever and never changed. Um, <clears throat> the uh, problem that Einstein found and it really worried him. But when he produced his equations, he found that they predicted that a static universe was unstable. Now, let me try to illustrate that also. <coughs> uh, I'm sure somebody should play tennis, or used to perhaps, if you're an old liar. Um, when you're serving the ball, you throw the ball up in the air, and it rises, and it slows down. Eventually, it stops. Its motion ceases. But it doesn't stay there, does it? Because that split second for which it is stationary is an unstable situation. And so the ball starts to fall again. So, in a sense, you can say that the tennis ball is, is in stable motion uh, whilst it's rising, and it's in stable motion whilst it is falling. But it is unstable at the static. Now that again is just, a, just an illustration, just a picture. Einstein's equations said that you could have an expanding universe or you could have a contracting universe but you couldn't have a static universe because a static universe is unstable. <coughs> and now, as I say, at that time, in the early 1900s, uh, the scientific consensus was that the universe was static. And so Einstein, instead of coming out and saying, you're all wrong, and the first verse of Genesis is right, and he added a fudge factor to his equations, <coughs> which allowed the universe to be static according to his equation. He called it the cosmological constant. And in fact, uh, it, it is used still today, but not for that purpose. And he later described that as his biggest blunder because barely 10 years after he produced his theory of general relativity, it was discovered that the universe was, in fact, expanding. 
the number of American uh, astronomers, uh, one, of all, one, one of them was a man called Edwin Hubble, uh, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is named. <coughs> I'm sure you've all heard about that, some pictures that it's taken. Um, Edwin Hubble, who was, by the way, tipped as a future boxing champion at one stage, but he decided to do astronomy instead. Um, <coughs> uh, he was the one who put together growing evidence uh, of the fact that the distant stars and galaxies uh, in the universe were receding from us. So it was so-called, the so-called red shift, the light wavelengths are shifted towards the red, if uh, the object that we're looking at <coughs> is travelling away from us. And it was discovered that, that wherever you look in the universe, wherever you look, there, here, up, down, wherever you looked, you found that the rest of the universe was receding from us. And furthermore, Hubble's big contribution was this. <coughs> he showed that the speed at which the rest of the universe was flying away from us, the speed was proportional to the distance from us. So the more distant galaxies are receding at a much higher speed. Now, I'm going to run out of time, so I'm not going to try to explain that any further. But the point is that, that Einstein, having added this, this fudge factor to his equation, uh, to make the universe static, or to uh, allow it to be static, uh, had to withdraw, take the fudge factor out again, and say that the original equations were right after all. Now, of course, an expanding universe implies a much smaller universe as we go back in time. So, if we go back in time now and say, well, let's trace the history of the universe back and back and back, well, of course, the universe is contracting as we go back in time. And the astronomers, or perhaps uh, we should call them cosmologists now, have reached the conclusion that the universe actually began some point in the past. It began as what is called a singularity, uh, a situation in which certain physical uh, parameters like temperature and density <coughs> become infinite. And the scientific rules that we work by uh, on a daily basis they just don't apply anymore. And there is this <coughs> projection backwards to a time when the universe was the size of a pinhead. And the thing I need to emphasize here is that the universe we're talking about contains all of space and all of time. You know, we're not talking about a pinhead in space and time. We're talking about a pinhead which consists of space and time. And then, of course, as that pinhead goes even smaller, and you get into this singularity situation where you really cannot say anything scientifically about what's there. But nevertheless, the bottom line of all this was that the universe had a beginning. It's not eternal. It wasn't always there. And therefore, we need an explanation of the beginning. The brute fact answer is no longer possible. People don't use that argument anymore these days. Everyone, atheists, Christians alike, say the universe had a beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is right, and it's been right for more than 3,000 years, but it's only in the last 100 years that science has caught up with that fact. 
in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. There was a beginning. The Bible says it. Science now says it. There was a beginning. And if it has a beginning, then it needs explanation. We need to know why, how it began. I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, this is just the first part. Next week, we'll be airing the second part of Dr. Andrews's presentation called Atheism's Logical Cul-de-Sac. All this comes back to Jesus. You heard him talk about how this main argument of atheism fails. And the reality is that God does exist and he manifests himself in the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He says that if you put your faith and your trust in him, you'll be forgiven, you'll be adopted into his family, guaranteed a life with him on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. I pray that if you've never put your faith in him, surrendering your life to him. I pray that you do that this morning. Go to godsolutionshow.com for a list of local churches that you could visit this morning, and please join us this Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125 for Connect. Again, 6 p.m., Noble 125 for Connect on Tuesday. Well, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. <laughs>